The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference. Welcome to part B of my discussion with Tarun Gupta. A number of key elements came out for me. It struck me that what Tarun does and how he operates is very considered, thoughtful and deliberate, and he holds his team in very high regard. In part B, we speak about a lesser known asset class, land lease. We speak about how it works and Stockland's aspirations to grow this business. We also get Tarun's view on how to help Australia's current housing supply problem and how affordable housing can work within that. But for now, Australia has a housing affordability problem and we talk about that as well. I also asked Tarun for his views on potential government policy change as they may relate to residential and we also touch on his views on office, retail and industrial. Finally, we get a sneak preview of Stockland's sustainability strategy and its four pillars. It's a great discussion. Please enjoy part B of my discussion with Stockland CEO, Tarun Gupta. Right, I want to shift gears to land lease. First of all, can you explain to those listeners not familiar with the business, how it actually works? It's, it's probably not a term that is well understood in broader Australia, maybe in financial circles, but how does it work? It's a great concept for our times. The customers, and, and we, we, I've spoken to many customers, they, they love this product because it works like this. Um, it's targeted for 50 plus cohort. Um, our average age in our land lease community is actually 65 years. So it's the younger retiring or about to get into retirement um, cohort, mainly baby boomers now who are coming into that age. And the way it works is um, that we, um, they buy the land, uh, sorry, the, the house from us. So we build a brand new home. They are downsizing typically. So the way it works is they'll sell their family home. The kids have moved out and they're looking for a, the best stage of their life, which is a lifestyle solution to enjoy their retirement. So they'll sell their family home. They on, on average will release about 25, 30% equity based on the trade areas we operate in. And for that, they can afford a brand new three or four bedroom home, but it's a manufactured home. That's what they buy from us, but it's coming in at a discount to what they would have sold their home. So they have actually savings left over. And that's that's because Stockland owns the land, the land. That's the and lot. they're buying the built form, which is done economically Correct. at scale and so on. So. Yeah. I, I guess in theory, they then have money left over to live on if they're not working. That's that's exactly right. And and we charge them a ground rent once. So we sell the home to them, we develop and then they buy the home. So there's a development margin we make and they get a brand new home. Then they enter, we grant them a long-term lease in really it's a 99 year lease which can be renewed so it's a it's very much like a perpetual lease and for that they pay a ground rent today's ground rent if you're a couple were living in a normal home in one of our communities you're paying about 200 to 240 dollars a week and a number of our clients uh, we don't know exactly but about a third would qualify for commonwealth uh, commonwealth rental assistance scheme so you could if you qualify and have net assets of uh, under $850,000, then you can get up to $140 a week as a rental assistance. So that that ground rent really is the return we get, uh, long-term high-quality annuity. But what the customer gets for that is the quiet enjoyment of all the community facilities, which are fantastic, Matt. Uh, if you go there uh, to our communities, you'll go, can I, can I come here for a holiday? Because they are fantastic facilities, you know, 
swimming pools, um, you know, theaters, um, some, some have golf courses attached, really amazing lifestyle communities that, um, that our customers deserve to enjoy, uh, their retirement. So it's a, it's a model that's been going in the US for 30, 40 years in Australia. It's been 20, 30 years here, but it's just starting to get now institutional interest. And, um, Stockland, uh, when I joined, it was one of the first moves I, I made, um, when we bought the Halcyon business. Yeah. There was another, another multi hundred million dollar transaction that you embarked on really early. Well, so what's the, what's the scope and scale? Just give listeners a perspective of how many lots, how many you actually sold in the last period where you can get to just to give everyone a sense of perspective yeah it's it's uh, it's uh, still an emerging sector and and you know the the macro fundamentals supporting the sector are we've got two and a half percent per annum demographic growth in the 50 plus cohort because as we know the australian population is aging so it's a high high demand sector um the penetration rate for retirement homes or land lease is less than two percent so still most people age in and in their family home, but this is an alternate lifestyle choice. Um, what can it be for us? We have around 10,000 homes under our, our business now, 3,000 operating, there's 7,000 in the development pipeline. Uh, we will settle around 350 lots uh, by 30th June this year, which is around what our guidance is. But in future years, next year we'll grow from that. Last year we settled 250 homes. And over the medium term, which is the next three to five years, we, we plan to be doing about 1,000 um, homes per annum, which is what our pipeline can deliver. And I think, Matt, just a little bit of build. It is a new sector for Stockland. I did say it was the first big move I made as a as the CEO of Stockland within, I think we announced the deal in August. I joined in June. What gave me conviction and what gives me even more conviction today to play a you know, significant role in this um, land lease sector is it is what Stockland's been doing for 70 years. So buying land, greenfield land, then getting it rezoned or DA approved, doing the civil works, selling a home is all that we do. We do 6,000 of those activities per annum in our master plan community. So we have all the core corporate competencies to do that activity. Where we lacked some experience, but now we have it, is when we build the home because we weren't a home builder. So there is a secret source in how you design homes and how you get the costs to work at a certain price point to be affordable for our customers. Halcyon Business had 20 years experience. And I saw that in my first trip I made to look at the business. I could see a Halcyon home versus the first prototype that Stockland was building. And even though our Stockland home was very good, I could see the 20 years of learning even to my untrained, na- na- untrained naked eye of what a difference 20 years of experience does. And that's what we've done now, integrated the business over the last two years. It's gone really well. We are ahead on our underwrite, our market position's improving, and our pipeline's increasing. So we're out there organically looking at sites, but also with our Mitsubishi joint venture, we have the capability to buy larger portfolios if they become available because we have the capital uh, structure in place. And I think in the last couple of years, since you um, since you started looking at this, the the rental market, the owned secondary rental market, has just gone through the roof. It continues rents continue to go up. I imagine relatively higher rents in the secondary market actually make this 
uh, product relatively more attractive, right? They 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 do in a, in a in a in a way, but not predominantly because the in um the homeowners who are buying are. They look at the rent, but they look at the price, you know, the lifestyle choice they're making. But yes, um, there are sector has some market reviews, et cetera, that, you know, are tested against the prevailing rents in the market. So it does have an impact. But the way we see um, this business and we're actually making changes is once we have our residents on a on, you know, they come in and they start paying the ground rent. We want it to be a sustainable long-term business. So our reviews are pegged to CPI or three and a half percent. Um, those sorts of structures. We used to have a more market reviews. We've taken them out. We put more like 10 year market reviews because we, we want, as I said, a long-term experience with our homeowners rather than, you know, volatile market rent movements because it's a very high quality annuity stream that we get but in return we want to offer um, relatively uh, you know um, steady outlook for our homeowners as well all right so not so much not so much related to the uh, to the rental market i imagine a lot of those going into um, those developments are actually owning their own home anyway um, so perhaps less relevant um looking at australia's housing housing shortage a lot of commentary out there at the moment about the lack of supply i imagine that's a, a generally a positive driver, but from a housing supply perspective overall, what, what how do you see that being addressed, particularly given now that net migration is going to pick up post-COVID? We've had supply chain issues, so there's less being built, so more demand, less supply. Do you have any clues as to what the answer might be here? We, we and we, you know, I have been saying this and our property industry says this consistently, we do have a structure structural issue on on supply um we are just not producing enough homes in the last few years to satisfy the just the structural population growth and immigration we're getting so supply and planning you know making planning more efficient are the biggest lever we have but we do know that lever is not the only lever there are other um, other ways of addressing the issues. Um, the second one, which Stockland particularly wants to play its role is providing a housing continuum, uh, right from, you know, social and affordable housing, which obviously Stockland won't do, can't do because of our commercial enterprise, but how we support other CHPs in that. And then right through shared equity, built to rent, land lease, single family rentals, you know, built to sell premium, we've got to produce more financial structures and more options for our community to go through depending on their life stage and their lifestyle and their affordability metrics. We have, uh, we need more diversity of housing. That's definitely what we're working on. And as I just illustrated, land lease is a great solution for Australia because it will house the aging demographic in a really strong and, and um, you know, uh, strong communities without a big burden on the taxpayer and because the private sector is playing a role and government supports that sector through concessions on council rates, water rates, uh, stamp duty, depending on the circumstance in the state. So they are, they are particularly the two areas, you know, housing continuum and supply and planning reform. And I think the third one, which uh, we want to play our role and, and we're encouraged by 
the government, state and federal, who are working on how more public-private partnership structures can be put in place, not PPPs, but how, you know, the half program that the federal government has um, uh, announced and are working through to deliver 30,000 affordable homes and social housing. How can the private sector participate? We certainly are preparing to see how our portfolio can contribute to that supply uh, requirement once it comes out. So, you know, long-term supply is the key issue, but actually near-term, you know, sales are down 50 to 60% in the master plan community space for Australia. Actually, near-term, it's not a supply issue. It's a affordability issue mm. um, affordability issue and also an affo- uh, uh, issue of deliverability because of the issues we're having in the building industry but over the next 12 24 36 months that will abate and we will be back talking about supply so so on on affordability house prices are seem like they're going up again is that your is that your experience? Is that what you're saying? Established there? homes are going up. Um, uh, we are still, as I said, volumes are down in in our part of the market, fifty percent. Um, so we are we are holding value, uh, but established homes, yeah, from what it's reported, are starting to go up, and that's just showing you that imbalance of supply versus demand because there's not a lot of, um, you know, I, I saw the auction rates uh, yesterday, Sydney was at 79%. We know at 79, 80%, it's a it's price, it's, growth. It's yeah. price growth because demand's exceeding the amount of homes that are being offered. There's just not enough stock coming through the established homes. The, the, um, the new housing product in, say, master plan communities, we have stock to sell, but affordability is an issue because interest rates have gone up. And even though we have full employment, the first home buyers are finding it very hard to, um, you know, get because of cost of living and interest rates to enter the market. Mm-hmm. So we need to, you know, in, in, in you know, that needs to, at the, the key trigger that we think will start to get first home buyers and more affordable product moving is interest rate stabilizing and um, we're all waiting for that um, hopefully it happen- happens soon so if i had to put you on the spot and say sydney and melbourne residential house price growth in the next 12 months well, what do you think we we rely matt on less that metric than volumes but if i was um, hazarding a guess it would be low to mid single digits we will see price growth because of that undersupply issue and that 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 will remain because we'll have a million immigrants coming in the next two to three years i'm going to ask you a few questions around potential government policy changes because that's often a, a real driver of the market one way or the other so i'm going to mention a few if you could um maybe just give you a quick view on each Rent controls? Uh, not a good idea. I thought you might say that. I'll, I'll tell you what, if, if we've got a supply problem and rent controls are brought in, then we're going to have a bigger supply problem. Um, increased first home buyer grant? Yeah, it targeted, yes, absolutely. They are very effective. But again, um, I would say more supply side reform than more demand drivers, but they will definitely help our first home buyers. All right. What about public housing provision or an increase thereof by state governments on state government land? Yeah, on state government land, very strong case for it. Um, I've personally experienced the benefits that brings in markets like the UK, where where I I had experience in. So definitely an area. Also, when there's um, 
new rezonings being done on you know government or metro along metro lines in Sydney and Melbourne i think we can be much bolder with those schemes on higher density but also a higher proportion of uh, affordable and social housing because the private market would respond to those requirements positively all right might be a good segue into the next one so a significant increase in instances where the state governments take over planning control from local councils does that make an impact for for certain projects uh, it does i think at, at a certain scale um, as i said around metro stations or where it unlocks big opportunities for the community or big supply that makes sense um but also um with councils having um you know the, the you know clear targets on performance I think if councils are performing to the requirements what the country needs and the city or state needs that can be another good lever to pull um but yeah both both those i think we've just got to recognize that we need to supply more homes otherwise prices will continue to go up rents will continue to rise and the community will be worse off so we have to look at that as a fundamental way of uh, increasing um, the supply of affordable and other forms of housing and maybe ramifications if those targets aren't met Yes. Um, could be a good idea as well. What about an increase in overseas buyer tax or stamp duty? And I notice Singapore just increased it to 60%, if you can believe it, 60. Um, any impact there? Yeah, I think uh, we don't we don't have a lot of foreign buyers that are buying in the market. They were, you know, mid to uh, 2015, 2016 when I was selling a lot to overseas buyers. Um it's not that anymore we have very low overseas demand um and we need to actually encourage it because whether it's btr for institutional capital or built to sell the pre-sales are quite weak at the moment and having you know international capital support more housing whether it's investors who can then provide more rental options to our community we should be encouraging that uh, and you got to remember the foreign the foreigners didn't create the housing issue we have the last 3 years has the we had the almighty boom in house prices there was no foreigners coming in because we were shut down for for covid it was actually australians buying more housing homes because of the undersupply issue that we have and the trend towards more you know working from home and hybrid working which is also having a structural shift in more more housing and of course household formation in australia has changed quite dramatically where single family um or single single people homes are the one of the largest sector that that's growing so all that requires more capital more diversity of housing so we should be encouraging foreign investment not discouraging it all very good points mr gupta as always um, i'm going to jump to a part of the market where there's no supply problem uh, well no undersupply problem anyway and that, and that's office markets how tough is it out there at the moment and, and what's your what's your outlook for office well firstly it's uh, our lowest exposure we we are Uh, under 15% exposed to to the office which is um, you know not a material exposure all our development um all our sites are predominantly development sites into premium um new age workplaces and we'll commence uh, once we get the right level of uh, de-risking through capital partnerships the office market um has got challenges they were reported we called it quite early um in in our strategy review that covid and hybrid working 
uh, are trends that are structural in nature. We are seeing that, um, which means there is a flight to quality. Um, people, uh, you know, corporates and tenants are more discerning. So there are parts of the market that are doing well, but there is net net a drag on demand. And then you add on top of that, the recessionary outlook in overseas markets and the subdued economic forecast for even Australia, which will eventually have impacts on white collar employment. Those two combined together board for a fairly weak outlook in the near, near term to medium term. But as I have seen, having worked in office markets for 25 years, office, like other asset classes, does regenerate itself. We will be in office buildings in 10 years time, but they're going to be quite different and very much a different offer than we find today. So that regeneration, obsolescence uh, to hire different uses is what the markets will need to go through. I think the Australian market is not in the same bucket as the you say the US markets or parts of Europe. What's what's the main difference there? Because we know the US um, office market is, there's no bid there at the moment. No, um, it's I think the 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 cities work differently. Our commute times are long, but they're not as long as my New York or San Francisco. The underpinning of the tech sector is not as strong. You know, Sydney's fifty percent financial markets, so there are differences. But at the end, as we know, global capital is global. And, and there are major headwinds in those. So that will have an impact. And we're starting to see that come through in in uh, bid-ask spreads and also in some of the cap rates uh, for commercial property. So the outlook is relatively weaker compared to other asset classes. And hence why we are also in a you know, fairly modest allocation to that sector. So just on cap rates, just office, retail, industrial, what's your outlook over the next 12 months for each of those? And, and this is a... It's a very general discussion. Obviously, there's sub-markets, there's um, all different grades, but just generally? I think all right across the board, and this is happening overseas as well, you know, cost of capital's gone up. You know, cost of debt's double what it was 18 months or 12 months ago, really. Um, so that's reading through now in expanding cap rates really across the board. Um, but the value diminution, which is actually the take evaluation, it depends on sector by sector. What we're seeing, and I anticipate that'll be the case at 30th June for the sector, logistics because of tailwinds, the, the income growth is offsetting expansion in cap rates and you're actually seeing values either hold or grow. And that's definitely, there's evidence in the f- uh, physical market for that. Sectors like land lease, again, good income growth offsetting uh, any weakness, in fact, Probably not, and we're not seeing any cap rate movements or anticipating those. Um, retail, um, there are pockets where there will be some expansion, uh, probably at the mid to larger shopping centers, whereas the smaller neighborhoods and small sub-regionals are showing uh, very robust demand from privates and syndicates. So I think retail will be a mixed outlook and, and office definitely. There's uh, capital value pressure and cap rate pressure. It just you know, premium might be a bit tighter, but non-premium will have some major cap rate expansion risk. Very insightful. Thank you. Now we're on the homeward stretch. We're on the homeward stretch. I just wanted to touch on your broader sustainability strategy. Is it it end customer preferences that are driving the major components of your sustainability strategy? Would you, would you sum it that way? End customer, yes, but at its core, it's it's um, it's it's our core business is what's driving it. Because when we look out 
the next five to 10 years, um, our hypothesis is that the resilience of our business and the competitive advantage of our business is anchored in how we respond to various aspects of sustainability. Uh, and for us, those are there's four pillars, um, and we'll be sharing more in the coming months on 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 that matter as as we finalize a sustainability strategy. But the four pillars are decarbonization. We have to play our role. Scope one, two, and three. All of those three we're very focused on, and the choices we make from here can have a significant impact on on Stockland's footprint and our upstream and downstream impacts that we have. So we've focused on that. Circularity, um, something that Australia is not as focused on as uh, Europe is, but circularity and using our resources in more circular fashion so we can recycle, reassemble, design for reassembly, all of those factors, very important. Um, the third is social impact. How how we work with anticipating and working with changing and, and evolving society's expectations. For us, the key pillar in social impact that we think Stockland can make a big impact is what I spoke about, the housing continuum. How we can perform promote ecosystems of providing diversity of housing and where our capital plays and our capital partners in providing more 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 diverse housing solution for different parts of society and then the last one is resilience and this is very important um, we're mapping each of our 200 assets um, on resilience on future flood fire um, heat stress and water stress to ensure that the portfolio we have is resilient over the coming 5, 10, 15 years. But also importantly, the decisions we make today in buying new properties, we're buying resilient assets of the future. So that resilience working with First Nations communities that we work on every asset that we have and using the First Nations insights into designing with country and, and uh, biodiversity and nature resilience are all things we're working on. So you can see as I talk about it, this is not something on the side. It is at the core of what mm. Stockland does. It is in fact our business strategy anchored in sustainability and uh, you will hear more about it in coming months, but this is a long-term change for Stockland and it is at the core of what we will be doing going forward. I'd love to circle back with you um, and talk about that um, when that is released. So all the areas there that ethical partners, we look at really, really closely. I'm glad you mentioned resilience around um, you know, physical risk and other related things to that. The social impact, I'd love to see how you measure it. There's been some companies out there and your your uh, previous company and others that have looked to measure that. And that that is critically important because of the you know what you do, um, the circular economy and waste and water management and so on. Of course, um, decarbonisation, scope one, and one, two, and three. I'd love to see your scope three strategy, which is trying to impact what others do is uh, is even harder than impacting what you do. So um, that's great. We'll, we'll circle back on those when you've when you release it. It's super fresh. Another kind of broad area um, that I know you're passionate about and something that Stockland does really well is that I think two-thirds of your senior management um, team are women, meaning I think that's one of the highest female representations of um, any company um, in those senior ranks um, in the ASX 300. And you're also a member of the Champions of Change property group, which uh, aims to achieve um, higher gender equality. It's a it's a really important area for you. Can you take us through your thinking, why that's important, um, just your passion for that um, particular area? Yeah, no, we, we're very fortunate. Our leadership team, as you say, um, Matt, is... Uh, 
is is unique in the ASX uh, sector. This is how the cards fell, but I'm really proud of the team that we have. Um, we we are passionate about um, diversity uh, right across Stockland and inclusion, uh, but. Why? Because it leads to better outcomes for the community and for Stockland because diversity of thought, diversity around the table is essential. And uh, and it starts with gender, but it then permeates through um, all forms of diversity. In fact, my internal ambition, and I'll share it publicly here, is what I've is said. This a, is this a um, good investing podcast first? Sorry? You're about to share a first with us? First? Good no, I think podcast? I've shared it with other stakeholders. It's not that. Uh, profound, but what what my ambition is when, you know, in the next few years, that Stockland itself, um, the way we look and and the uh, the diversity within our team reflects the society in which we we operate. Um, so you know, our Sydney team should look like how people in Sydney have from different different cultural backgrounds, from different de- demographic groups, from different gender groups, and that's then we are really reflecting the 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 customers and the stakeholders that we 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 uh, we work with. But uh, on on gender diversity, um, Stockland, you know, sixty percent of our employees are are. are um, or more than half are, are women. And of course, uh, the biggest challenge has been in promoting um, diversity at the more senior level. So I'm really fortunate at ISLT, we've got um, majority women, uh, but we're working really hard at the next two levels, how we bring women through our own programs and supporting them to go into senior management and to realize their ambitions. Because at the end, as I said, leads to better outcomes for community and definitely better outcomes for Stockland and its stakeholders. No, that, it's, a, it's a fantastic achievement and I'm sure there's a lot of other companies that will be looking to Stockland as, uh, as an example. I've got two more questions. The first one is around the focus on return on invested capital versus a previous focus on underlying earnings growth or funds from operations growth. Now, there, there seems to be a sh- there seems to have been a shift. If I look back at Stockland, underlying NTA hasn't grown a lot in the last 10 years. Earnings have grown. Um, you've realigned or the board has realigned the STIs and LTIs to reflect that. So can you take us through that thinking? Because I think it's really important. At the end of the day, we're all driven by incentives and uh, the management team will be driven by what uh, what, what drives their outcomes and, and overall um, security holders outcomes. So ROIC versus EPS growth or funds from operations growth, how are you thinking? Yeah. No, I think you make a good point. And as you would expect, I, together with our team and consultants, analyzed all forms of relative and absolute performance of Stockland versus our competitors and others in the market over the last 10 years. And um, what we do know, and you would know this better than us, Matt, given what you do, that there is a high correlation between ROIC and eventual security holder performance. Uh, of course, EPS growth goes into ROIC as well, but it's not either or. We need to be delivering both. We need to be delivering solid, consi- consistent, sustainable EPS and FFO growth, which we're very focused on, but at the same time, making investment decisions that continue to increase or, or sustain relatively uh, more robust ROIC performance compared to our competitors, to the market, and it's the combination of the two, in our view, will lead to more sustained uh, performance for Stockland and eventually outcomes for our security holders. So that is a new focus we brought in. ROIC was not in the 
language uh, as much as it is today. All our uh, investment proposals are measured on ROIC as much as they are on earnings accretion. And and the capital partnerships uh, are a high ROIC business because they improve, you know, um, a, uh, the return on invested capital. But at the at its core, it is, again, what I said, making sure we anticipate which sectors have tailwinds, which will lead to better valuation growth and better earnings growth and therefore better ROICs and downweighting or keeping mitigating sectors which have headwinds. So that's what we're trying to do. It is, as you said, now enshrined in ISTI for this year. Uh, it'll carry a significant weighting, which you'll see in the scorecard. And we do recognize that sometimes ROICs beyond your control, like if cap rates move, you know, 25 basis points across the board can wipe out our you know, we could underperform the target, but that's doesn't happen every year. It's you know, on on the whole over the through the cycle, we're trying to meet our right targets. It's a different way of thinking about investment decision making, capital allocations. You got to start to you know constantly review portfolio, look at the underperforming parts, relative underperforming assets in your portfolio divesting them or making strategic calls on them more proactively. So that's that's what we're trying to build into the team. And, and you know, we're having some early success, but uh, it's not either or, it's both. Uh, for, for what it's worth, uh, here at Ethical Partners, we think that is the um, the right strategy. Um, going down one path and not the other is is um, counterproductive, we think. So that makes a lot of sense. Right, we are really on the home and stretch here. I've got about three or four quick questions, general questions, what would you say motivates you to get up every day? I I work in an amazing industry. No two days are the same. Um, but at its core, um, you know, what motivates me is, um, you know, I, I came to came to a great platform. I, whenever my time's up, I want to look back and go. Uh, I left uh, the organization and the communities in which we operate in a better place than than we found it which I think you've already answered my second question without notice. Um, what do you want to be remembered for? So I think you've just answered something two Something along those lines. <laughs> yes, something um, along those lines. What, what are you reading that. at the moment? I, I, I'm I reading, um, I forget the name, um, but the, I'm actually rereading um, because of where we are, Good to Great, rereading. It's a book that I think everyone should read because it's a really uh, authentic uh, piece of research. I'm rereading it because mm. I read it a few times, but right now it's quite relevant to what um, what we're doing. So good to great. And how do you manage your stress levels? Um, but like you, Matt, I exercise. Um, I, I, um, I, I, yeah, I physically exercise. I meditate a little bit, um, but really what keeps me in check is balance, not just the work part of my life, which is quite a dominant part. And for that reason, I work on, I've got a hexagon of ha happiness, I call it. I've shared it with my team. There are other parts to my life, like my family, my my wife, my parents, my friends, my spiritual well-being, my health, financial well-being. So I make sure I'm constantly checking to make sure they are in balance. They're usually out of balance, but just the fact of checking in uh, me means you keep a bit of balance in your life. And and the other thing uh, which always um, I look forward to, COVID was harder because we were shut down, but I've always got a mantra of having my two to three next holidays booked in advance because I think like all people who work hard we all do having that you know um, 
period where you can spend time with your family and friends uh, motivates me and keeps me going. So I've got uh, July school holidays booked and September as well. So they're, they're both booked. I'm working on the Christmas ones. Where, where are you off to? Uh, Europe uh, in July. Um, and the back of it, I'll go and see uh, some of our security holders who haven't seen face to face. And then September is uh, Japan with my wife. Very nice. That seems to be a good balance in the holidays as well. And uh, last question, the most important attribute of a good leader? I think um, listening, humility would be the sorts of things I would say. I always remember you as a, a very good listener from 25 years ago. So, look, Taryn, Taryn, I'll keep on calling you Taryn, Tarun. I'll call you Taryn for 25 years. Tarun, it, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for sharing your insights. What, what we aim to, to get today was the, um, the thinking behind, uh, you know, one of Australia's, um, leading CEOs and, uh, how you got there some of the strategic factors. I think we've drawn all that out. We're looking forward to the updated sustainability plan, um, the areas that you talked about there. Um, but I found this a fascinating discussion. Um, I really, really do appreciate your time on the um, Good Investing Podcast. Thanks, Matt. And uh, thanks for your listeners for listening in. Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes and for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au. The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision.